Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee. I'm Maz Mary. And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Daily Dose. It is, I think, I think this might be the ninth episode we have left as we make our way down to zero. And so, um, you know, we told you that we were going to bring guests back who we held, we felt particular affinity for. We felt that with all of our guests, but some of our guests, we had some very specific things we wanted to know based on time passing, how things had gone in today is no different. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's bring on mother and daughter duo, both fantastic independent women in their own rights, but Joanna Conti and Karina Monison to join us on Daily Dose. Hello, Joanna. Hi. And hello, Karina. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. Thank you so much for making time to visit with us again. I went back to look. You were on Karina December 9th last year. You were episode 301. And Joanna, you are on December 16th and we're episode 303. So <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe it's already been almost a year since we talked to you. It really is. And I've got to say 377 episodes. I mean, my goodness, that is so impressive. Wow. wow. Thank you. Thank you. It's been, um, you know, it's been a gift to get to do. And we'll be interested to see what we figure out when we set it down and you know, I kind of look at it from a re researcher's standpoint. What's the data telling us? How do we interpret it? How do we share it? And then what? What's the next phase of the process? So it's been um, it's been a real joy, in part because of getting to meet people like the two of you, mm -hmm. you sharing your stories. Um, Karina, I have to tell you, I have probably told pieces of your story to. I don't know, eight or 10 different kinds of people, many of them young women who are, you know, where you were or um, parents of young, of young teenagers, early 20 year olds. And I've said, boy, let me tell you about a young woman and her mother and then shared these episodes. So your story really stuck with us yeah. because you shouldn't be here in so many ways and you certainly <laughs> shouldn't be thriving and you are. Well, thank you so much for, for saying that. I think that, you know, similar to your decision to kind of come forward, I, I like, for example, my father has always really honed in on the fact that like you keep your work and your life separate. And especially when it comes to something like addiction that is so stigmatized typically and definitely not something that you put on your your brag reel when you're talking to your boss or your colleagues or things like that i really took a step back and um you know realized several years ago that i oh sorry did i cut out you did you said you took a step back several years ago and realized yeah, I realized that I was more proud of my recovery and who I am today yeah. than I than I am ashamed of where I was back then. And uh, I really wanted to just share my story because I do think 
I hit some pretty low lows and I definitely wasn't a high bottom, high bottom drunk. And so I wanted to be able to hopefully share hope with people that were either where I was or had children that were where I was. So that really means the world to me that um, that you have been able to share it in that way. And, and also thank you for saying that. It, I Sometimes life just goes so fast and I tend to forget who I was back then and how far I come. So it was it was really a very cathartic experience for me to get to share my story with you and with your audience and uh, really meant the world to me. So thank you again for having me then and for bringing us back. Well, it's our privilege. So um, I think um, one of the things that that you are both working on in sort of different ways, because our audience might remember, Joanna, you are a, a real scientist researcher. You have this background, which much more aligns with Maz than say with me. Um, and Karina, you have taken on pieces of that as well in this work together. But one of the things that struck me when you were on Joanna was just this idea of where in the world do you go? Do you send your child, yeah. your most beloved person how do you know that it's effective? How do you know that, you know, the beautiful website is actually going to um, lead to hopefully an improved life? Where are you at in terms of that kind of um, trip advisor for rehab institutions and those <laughs> kinds of things? Well, of course, that was the, what really drove me to start both Vista Research Group and then with Karina to launch Conquer Addiction a couple of years ago was just the frustration of your 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 child's life or your spouse's life or whatever depends on finding effective treatment. And if you go on Google, you'll find lots of places promising to send you to the best place or figure out who's the best for you or tell you how wonderful their center is. And they all the websites pretty much look the same. You can't tell what is an effective treatment center and what isn't. And even the websites that say, we, we will help you find the best center for you are sales sites. They're connecting you with a salesperson who's trying to send you, sell you on, on coming to their center. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, this is healthcare and it's just so upsetting that there's not a way like there are in so many other serious um, diseases to find where is the most effective place to send your loved one. And so um, what's happened with Conquer Addiction is we've continued to grow. As a reminder to anyone who wasn't there a year ago, uh, what Conquer Addiction does is it allows you to search for treatment centers by whatever criteria that is important to you. It needs to be in this area. It needs to serve this type of patient. It needs to take this insurance, whatever. And it will give you a list of treatment centers that meet your criteria with those with the best independently validated outcomes on the top of the list. And then if you can learn more about that center, you can click through to their website, whatever. If it looks like that might be a good center for you, you contact the treatment center and learn more and decide if, if that's someplace that 
it is appropriate for you or your loved one. And so it's very different from everything else that's that's on the web. And we're just trying to continue to get the word out in two ways. One is, as I talked about last time, there's still very, very few addiction treatment centers that are scientifically measuring their outcomes and reporting them publicly. So while we're growing with Conquer Addiction, it's still a small percentage of the treatment centers out there that you can find on Conquer Addiction. Um, and so we're, we're trying to encourage more and more of the treatment centers to measure their outcomes so that they can see how effective they are and continue to improve. And we're trying to help get the message out to families that it is possible to accurately measure the effectiveness of addiction treatment, and we should accept nothing else. If you're talking to somebody at a treatment center and they say, trust us, you don't need to know our success rates. We're really good. We're one of the best. That's not acceptable. This is healthcare. Demand that they start measuring their outcomes. Um, that's what I'm hoping we, we can start a, you know, start a group of interested family members and patients and so forth who say, hey, this is healthcare. My life or my loved one's life depends on finding effective treatment. And it's not good enough to just say, we're really good. <laughs> yeah, you're, probably not, you're probably not going to find a lot of treatment centers that say, actually, we're terrible. No. <laughs> Nobody should come here because our success rate is zero. Yeah, right. Uh, that would be sort of refreshing in a weird and depressing kind of way, but you know. Um, so, uh, Karina, can you remind us how many times did you go to treatment? I went to inpatient treatment three times. Okay, and, and I also, also lived in some halfway houses and some sober living environments, right? Yes, I lived in three different halfway houses. I went to a halfway house. Gosh. Maybe it was four because I think I went to a halfway house every time after I left treatment. And then the last time that I got sober, I did not go to a full-time inpatient treatment center. Mm -hmm. um, I went to a halfway house and committed to stay there for at least six months. And then I did a um, an inpatient or excuse me, an outpatient treatment for the first month or two as part of that uh, stint. So I guess it was four different halfway houses that I lived in. Well, wow. I, I only ask because I think it's important for people to understand that you as a family have a pretty broad experience with this journey. And so it's not like you had one that you thought, oh, I didn't love that. And suddenly you launched this whole this whole world of work. Um, Joanna, I remember you saying, and I, I was very fascinated by this, that one thing that's really important, and Karina, you could speak, and Maz, you could both speak to this. But one thing that's really important is that you're finding a place that is a good fit for your the person who needs to go. So it, let's say you're a 17-year-old transgendered junior in high school, maybe going to a very traditional um, rehab center is not going to be the best fit. But again, when you're desperate, I mean, if someone had said to me, all right, Dana, here's an option of 12 treatment yeah. centers. You go through all these brochures and you tell Maz where you think he should go. 
I would have had no idea how to begin to evaluate that. So can you talk a little bit about that piece of it? Because I'm so fascinated and I'd love to hear about it, Karina, because you went as a very young woman and Maswood is sort of a middle-aged man. Those are two really yeah. different places. And yet you would have been in treatment together in many, many environments. Yes. Well, there's there's a large variation in different types of treatment. And there are a lot of treatment centers that um, individualize, focus on individual groups of, um, of patients. Um, what we were looking at in most of the centers that Karina went to is we wanted her to be with a group of young adults so they'd have similar experiences. Um, and, you know, what we do on Conquer Addiction is we do allow you to specify a number of different choices. You can say, you know, I, I want to go to a, a center that's, um, you know, has a separate um, lesbian, gay, uh, transgender group. Um, I want to go to a center that um, focuses on females only or, or males only or has a special young adult program or uh, whatever. And I, I think that um, it is really important to find the right fit. And Karina can speak to that um, from, from the, the individual's perspective. Yeah. And just to add on to that, mom, I think, you know, it's also interesting that there's different treatment centers that specialize in 12 step treatment, yes. right? Where there's other ones that, that kind of market themselves as we don't do 12 steps here and we do something else. And it might be, um, you know, some that might do MHE treatment as opposed to abstinence based. So there's a lot of variation. Um, the very first treatment center that I went to, are we allowed to talk about names. I have nothing but positive things to yeah. say about all yeah. As long as you're comfortable with it, we are too. Okay. Yeah. So I went to, and, and I will say that I had nothing but positive experiences about each of the treatment centers that I went to. They were all high quality, very expensive treatment centers. Um, so we were, we were fortunate enough in that even though mom didn't have a whole lot to go on, she did end up choosing high quality places for me each time. And but it was, was luck. It was, it, it was, was luck, yes. you know, that's what's so frustrating. It, it depended on, you know, I connecting with somebody and, and believing them when they said we're one of the best and, and there were other people we talked to that also said we're one of the best. Yeah. I mean, it was sheer luck that Karina is in recovery today because we were able to luck into really effective treatment. So I'm sorry, Karina to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no. Um, so the very first treatment center that I went to was Karen. And that was, um, that was the, they, they put me into a young adult female program there. And it was a relatively new program. They had just instituted it. So I was, um, I just turned 20 at that point, like a, a month earlier, I had turned 20. And so I was in there with a lot of girls that were between the ages of maybe 16 and 22, I think. And that was an incredible experience because I did feel like I, you know, was there with my peer group. But I have to say that, and again, that was also my very first treatment center. It was my first experience. I got so much out of it. But the next two treatment centers that I went to, I was in with the general population. And I honestly think that I actually got more out of that, to be mm -hmm. honest, because I got to see where I was headed. 
so to speak. Oh. And so there was a lot of people, again, it was a wide variety of experience. I hit pretty low lows relatively early in my drinking career. Um, but there were people that I had seen that had similar stories to me and were 20, 30 years older. And it was devastating. You know, I, I was looking at that and thinking, wow, I haven't, like, I've lost everything but I don't have much to lose yet. And trying to imagine like, what if I'm 40 years later and I still don't have anything to lose because I never gained it or I did somehow manage to gain it and then lost it all. So I, I think it was a very powerful experience for me to really empathize and experience where this life was was headed and to see what I had in common as well as what was different between me and a 50-year-old man or a 50-year-old woman. And so I actually personally think that I had a better experience and I felt um, even more motivated to get sober being in the general population than I did with a group of girls that were around my same age. But that might have just been my strange experience. I've always uh, gotten along well with people that are older than me. So maybe that had something to do with it too. But I, I will say that I found that very powerful to get to see this wide range of experiences. Was that true for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, well, I was 47, but I wasn't, I obviously wasn't the youngest, but I, I wasn't the oldest either. There were people there. There was at least four people there, probably 15 to 20 years older than me. There were there were people in their 30s, a couple of people in their, you know, just a few years younger than me. And then there were, well, I'd even call them the children, teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> a few people there younger than Quinn. Yeah. I mean, I, I have talked a lot about that circle that I went to speak to in Maz's rehab group. And that that group ranged from 20 to about 75. And I remember thinking, wow, what is the 20 year old feeling about this group? But I've never thought about it from your perspective, yeah, Karina, which is just looking ahead and seeing this could be, if I'm lucky to live, this could be me still struggling with this 40 years from now. Yes. Really amazing. Um, I want to put a note up from my mother. I just love the fact that you two have embodied everything wonderful about a parent-child relationship. You've been there for it all, and it's so incredible to see you thriving. What an example. We can't all do what you have done, but we can stay with it. You show us that. Oh. Yeah, that's really true. Um, oh, how nice. Got, like tears in my eyes. Yeah, me too a little. Um so I'm curious to know, Karina, it's fascinating to me that you got sober finally, or that it stuck when you went to an outpatient center, as opposed to these really intensive inpatient experiences, because maybe I said this to you when we talked last year, but the only thing I had a very strong opinion on when we were trying to figure out where Maz was going to go after he left the hospital was that he had to go to inpatient. I didn't believe anything else would work. I didn't know why I thought he needed to go to inpatient. It was just all I knew. Um, and we have since learned from a number of clinicians and other people who've been on the show with us that actually there's not 
really compelling evidence to say yeah. that inpatient is substantially better than a good outpatient program. Why do you think outpatient is what finally clicked for you? Oh, that's a great question. So I'm actually going to throw a wrench in your question. Great. And turn it turn it around a little bit. So I believe that for me in my personal journey, each of the treatment centers, the inpatient treatment centers that I went to had an instrumental impact on my ability to eventually stay sober. I think I did a lot of work and particularly at the refuge, which was the, the last inpatient center that I went to. I was there for three and a half months. It's a very intensive trauma-based treatment center. And so the therapy that I was doing was very intensive and there was a lot of traumas that I had um, it was interesting. Like I, I had traumas from my childhood that I think I had never fully processed because it seemed so minor, right? Like, oh, my parents got divorced. Oh, my dad had a heart attack. Like I got a baby brother when I don't know that I wanted one. It seemed like really stupid things to be, to be latching onto. And so I had always discredited them because, you know, a lot of children have real traumas and I didn't have that. But I think the work that I did in treatment really helped me recognize like one thing that stuck that I still tell people and remind myself of today is that your trauma is valid. Yes. Your trauma does not have to compare and be worse than someone else's trauma to be valid. And so those early life experiences that we know impacted me, like I had, um, my mom will tell you, I was six years old or so when I started having accidents in the closet after a bunch of these pretty major life changes happened one after the other. And she sent me to play therapy at the time. Like, obviously, even though these things were not, I wasn't starving. I didn't have, um, you know, these, these crazy experiences. But to me, it was still a very valid. Bye. I love you. <laughs> He's, he's fine, honey. I'm no, on a, oh, okay. Well, come on in. <laughs> Sorry. Working, working from home, calling from home. My husband's taken, um, it's all good. Taking our dog to the, to get groomed and everything. This is my husband, by the way. Hi husband. Hi, Hi, husband. Ryan. Hi, husband. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Have a good day. He's handsome, right? So handsome. <laughs> I love you. Yeah. Told you I'm thriving. <laughs> we didn't doubt it, Karina. <laughs> um, sorry. So I, um, you know, I worked through that trauma and I also worked through a lot of the trauma that inevitably happens as a blackout drunk young female. Um, and so I think that the work that I had done in treatment was for my personal journey, absolutely critical to my ability to then stay sober long-term. Like even though I relapsed after that, I don't think I lost the critical lessons and impact of the treatment centers that I went through. However, treatment is a privilege that the vast majority of addicts and alcoholics never have the opportunity to experience. And so from the research that I've done and certainly the literature that I've read, the vast majority of people that end up entering recovery do so through 12 steps or through other no to low cost options. And many of them do end up staying sober long term. There's oftentimes several relapses, but the same could be said for treatment centers. So I don't think inpatient or outpatient have a, um, a monopoly on recovery. I think that there's a lot of 
ways for people to get and stay sober. And for each person, it's a journey. I do think that the data shows that going into an inpatient or potentially outpatient treatment where there's accountability and there's a lot of um, basically like changing your life to focus on your recovery instead of just trying to do it for an hour here and there. I do think that it makes sense. Um, hypothetically, I don't know the data necessarily, but it does make sense to me that there would be higher success rates for people that are able to completely change. Plus, if you're going to inpatient treatment, you're maybe moving to another state and maybe relocating to that state where you, all of your friends are not doing the same thing. So, um, but, but I think that whether it's inpatient or outpatient or 12-step or many of the other interventions that people use to try to gain recovery, I think that ultimately a lot of it comes down to um, whether you're ready and then also how hard you're willing to work. Because I think even if you are really ready, for me at least, until I started doing the work in my real life, it it didn't it didn't stick. And so to me, that's why we made the decision this last time not to go to inpatient because I felt like I had really learned a lot of lessons through the inpatient programs that I had been to and um, and also outpatient. What I really needed help with was living my day-to-day -day life sober and staying sober while I kept a job, staying sober while I made friends and had freedom and like started to gain a semblance of a normal life. That was when I tended to relapse and to lose it. And so that's where I needed the most support. And so that's why we chose a halfway house because it was the additional accountability. I was still surrounded by people that were trying to do the same thing that I was, but I was also gaining real life experience while staying sober. And I think that was really critical for me. So the whole inpatient versus outpatient um, I think again, inpatient is a lower, lower cost to entry. And so it makes sense that maybe the, the success rates are not that much different because there's probably a lot more people that can pursue inpatient than outpatient. But I think it, um, there's so many variables and, and mom probably knows the data better than I do and can share to that. But I, um, I do want to mention that there are a lot of people that get sober without going to any treatment at all. Yeah. yeah. That's true. And I, I will add one thing. Um, our research shows that, um, you know, if, if you're following a continuum of care, which a lot of a lot of people will do where first they go to inpatient and then maybe they step down to some outpatient, that the, the time that you spend in outpatient may be even more important once you've gotten the base of being able to, um, you know, get through those first really rough, seven, 14, 21 days, once you've gotten through that, the transition to real life, it's, it's very helpful to have, um, you know, support, continued support during that transition. Yeah. Hmm. Anything you want to add? Putting you right on the spot. Yeah. Putting me right on the spot. <laughs> um, did you attend when you were in, in treatment? Did they, because when I was in treatment, every day of the week they sent us out during the day and at night. We went to different AA meetings, and what they did for for us is we went to different ones. So in in Fargo Moorhead, there's probably about eighty different AA meetings. Some of them are super, um, 
low key. Some of them are kind of 12 steps. Some of them are big book meetings. So you read out of the, you know, you read out the big, big book and discuss it um, after you've read it. Some of them were staunch 12 steppers and some of them are really sort of spiritual and religious. So we got the idea of which one worked for us. Did you still have to do that when you we just did. It, in the um the, the first treatment center that I went to, we didn't go to any external meetings. I don't know if that was true for the general population, but for our uh, young adult female group, we had all of our AA meetings in-house, like just within our group. Um, but for the other two treatment centers that I went to, we did go to external meetings. And yes, we, we would typically go to the same meeting that day of the week, but we went to a good mixture of different meetings, which I do think is really important for people yeah. to experience because I don't know about you, but for me, I used not liking AA meetings as an excuse at multiple times during my journey to recovery to kind of say, well, I'm not going to this. Like, I don't like these meetings. They make me think about drinking even more than I would normally when in reality, I just hadn't found the right meetings. And, you know, every meeting is different. And even to this day, like there's some meetings that I love and there's some meetings that I walk out of and I'm like, whew, okay, I was not feeling that vibe. <laughs> and, um, and I think having the experience of realizing that every meeting is different and there's different formats, there's different people and like finding your tribe, finding your meeting is really important. And I think, especially in treatment, if you're not aware of that yet, if this is your first introduction to, to meetings or to the recovery world, you might have a bad experience at one meeting and think, oh gosh, this is not for me. I'm yeah. never going back. No, that's an important thing to bring up because I think I absolutely agree with you. If you, if you find the right one, they can be incredibly beneficial. If if you're stuck in a bad one for you, it's it could almost it could almost be detrimental. De detrimental. Yeah. And you could almost feel yourself going backwards. Can I just share one one quick story about that? Yeah. Okay. So my husband and I met at our home group. It was both of our home group and that's how we met uh almost 10 years ago at this point. But when when we had he has nine months he had nine months more than I did. Um, and when he was, gosh, I don't know, maybe at two years and I was at a year and a half or something like that, we went to a meeting in New York that I had heard about from a famous author who I loved. And he was always talking about this meeting in New York. And we happened to be in New York. So we went to this meeting and we both had, you know, a decent amount of sobriety under our belts at this point. And we sat in this meeting and it was basically just a lot of people talking about how miserable they were and these people that had long periods of sobriety that were just talking about how you know they still wanted to drink every day or use every day and things like that and he and i both walked out of that like <laughs> we had such a bad experience that we did we walked out of there being like i feel less sober than i did when we walked in and so really to me like as a reminder because i hadn't been to a meeting that made me feel that way in so long and we both had the same experience like there are meetings that um might not that might be stuck more in the problem than in the solution and in my experience staying in the solution is so critical yeah. to not only remaining sober but to remain sober and be happy about it yeah, yeah. um question from bob joanna did your relationship with karina fluctuate with major ups and downs during her treatment did you question whether you might lose her completely during this time 
so many times. Yeah. I mean, it just just the question just brings it back. The terror I would feel when the phone would ring that somebody would tell me that my daughter had died. I mean, it, Karina, Karina threw herself completely into drinking. Right? She drank to potentially lethal levels over and over for long periods of time. And um, it was, it was, it was absolutely terrifying as a mom. And yes, it was very difficult. There were so many times I just wanted to strangle her, you know, I mean, you know, you know, you can obviously see she's a very bright, mature woman. She was a bright, sensitive teenager. And you're like, you know, this is destroying your life. For heaven's sakes, just stop. Yeah. You know, like, why can't you just stop? And it, it's really difficult for, for families where you're thrown into this world that you know nothing about. And you certainly never thought you would find yourself in this situation where your beloved child is doing things that could potentially kill themselves over and over again. And, you know, I, I was desperate for five years. I was so desperate. How do I help? Yeah. And it's very difficult to find reliable information about how do you help? And so that's what led me you know, years later when Karina was, thank, thank goodness, finally on the road to long-term recovery that I said, we've got to find a way to help the, the, the parents coming behind us yeah. because those were without question the five worst years of my life. Mm. We talked to a father and daughter. Um, I, I, I don't know when, who can, who cares in the last two and a half years. And he said, I think the most chilling thing that has been said on this program, because yeah. she's the oldest of four girls. And he said, there were many, many times it got so bad that my wife and I sort of hoped that she would die because it was ruining our family and we could see no way out. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is an unbelievably honest response. I spent a lot of time thinking, what if he just died? That would take care of so many things. If he would just die, I could get back to some kind of life for myself. That is a terrible, terrible thing to admit to yourself. It's really hard. But it's that's how devastating yeah. it is to live with this and to watch someone you love go through it. And your point, Joanna, of why can't you just stop? That was probably the biggest thing I had to learn. That's like screaming at someone whose breast cancer comes back. Why did you let that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't invite it back in. I, it's just that is such a pivotal shift that we have not done a good job of culturally accepting. When addiction comes back, it's because you're a failure. And when cancer comes back, it's because you're unlucky. Both yeah. things are not true. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that if I can kind of segue into what we've been focusing on in, in, in the last in the last year uh, for Conquer Addiction, we're trying to move beyond just providing information 
to uh, people searching for treatment about what is the most effective treatment. And we're trying to get at a couple of the root issues that we think are really keeping addiction treatment from being as effective as it could be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you think about addiction treatment is healthcare, and yet we treat it very differently from other types of healthcare. And, um, you know, what, what we're trying to do with uh, the, the nonprofit that Karina and I founded is um, address a couple of issues that really should have been addressed many years ago. One is um, there's, there's several different types of treatment in addiction. There's, um, and, and just on a broad spectrum, there's, you know, the abstinence-based, the group that believes that the only way to recover <laughs> is through talk therapy and, and never drinking or using drugs again. And then there's medication-assisted treatment where, you know, the they believe that the route to recovery is to um, take medication that removes uh, the cravings and allows you to, you know, get back into, um, you know, a productive life easier. They're both very effective, I believe, for very different types of people. And we've never done the research to determine which type of person is probably most likely to be um, helped through abstinence-based and what type of person is probably more likely to be helped with medication-assisted treatment. You think about it, that that's like standard healthcare. You, you have different treatments and you, you do comparative research and you find out this type of treatment helps this type of person and this type of treatment helps that type of, per of person. It's never been done. So we have raised uh, some money to do comparative outcomes research among medication-assisted treatment centers. And the challenge we've run into is most of VISTA's data is among abstinence-based centers. And we really need some medication-assisted treatment centers to also uh, be willing to um, do comparable outcomes research. Another thing we're, we're really struggling with is um, we know from VISTA's research a number of factors that make a real difference in whether treatment is likely to lead to recovery. One of those facts, and, and it's common sense, it's things like, did you go to an effective treatment center? Did you successfully complete all treatment? How long were you in treatment? What's your primary drug of choice? Were you still dealing with high levels of trauma when you left treatment? That sort of thing. It, it's, it's common sense, really. But what's interesting to us is that the health insurance industry seems to be paying attention to different factors than those. And, you know, we hear regularly about um, patients that, you know, they, they want to step them down to a lower level of care after seven days or after 14 days or something, which our research shows that's not, they haven't had enough time and treatment for that to, to have a good solid foundation to become, uh, you know, to stay in recovery long term. So we're also doing some payer research where we are actually analyzing claims data, or getting ready to analyze claims data, where we can hopefully show the payers that there are things they could do that are more effective that would help them simultaneously improve quality while um, saving money because of course that's one of their key foundations. So we're, we're trying to do some research into the root causes of why treatment is not as effective as it could be. Wow. And um, so. That is just amazing. Well, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting piece of the puzzle that hasn't been addressed. 
Yeah. You know, well, you don't think about it if you're not a science research type person. I mean, I would not, <laughs> that would not be where my mind would go. But of course, it's where minds like yours go. <laughs> weirdos. <laughs> well, weirdos. I mean, you know, we're all weird in our own way, Joanna. <laughs> Us data geeks. Yeah. Well, thank goodness, though. I mean, you know, what wouldn't we know if someone wasn't curious enough to really dig into the tedium of this work so that you can look at the long-term effectiveness of all of that? So... Well, this has been um, this has been as compelling as I knew it would be because the last two conversations were just riveting, and this has only yeah, further confirmed that that you two are doing amazing work, yeah. that you are living these beautiful, sober out loud lives, parent of this out loud lives, <laughs> with no shame and no apology with just the intention of trying to make sure other families do not need to suffer the way that you suffered to get to a positive conclusion. Just amazing. I've also, just to give kind of a quick update for my professional life outside of conquer yeah. addiction, addiction. So I work for UKG, which is a HR technology vendor. So we sell workforce management software, human capital management software. And in my role, I frequently go and speak at conferences or speak with customer prospect audiences about some, some big topics that they should care about, trends that we're seeing in the workforce, things like that. And um, I decided earlier this year, in large part, based on how comfortable I felt sharing my story with you for the very first time, publicly sharing my story for the first time, because it went on LinkedIn. And I saw that a bunch of people that I worked with liked it. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, some people that I work with know, but not everyone. And so that was, I, I like freaked out for a second. And then I was like, no, this is good. I'm ready for really this. Sorry about that, Karina. No, no, it, was, it was honestly, it was a really pivotal turning point for me. And I, I, I felt so good about the conversation that we had and felt motivated that my story could, could help people. And so I decided to start applying to talk about substance abuse at some of these conferences. And so I created a, a pitch. I called it a tale of two pandemics, COVID-19, oh. substance abuse, and HR. And basically in the presentation, I spend a decent amount of time in the beginning talking about what is substance abuse and explaining how it effects and works in the brain and why it's classified as a disease. I talk about how bad it is, right? And, and statistically, how many people are affected, how many people are dying. Then I talk about how the pandemic made it worse and all of this really horrific data that, that really speaks to people. And then I specifically talk about how it's affecting businesses, like the bottom line and how the what it's costing businesses and what percentage of employees are most likely struggling with substance abuse, and then specific steps on how HR can help. And as part of that presentation, I spend a few minutes, maybe you know, seven to 10 minutes sharing my personal story. And it's been picked up several times. I, I had the opportunity to share it for the first time at the largest um, Florida conference, which was really fantastic back in August, the largest HR conference in Florida and a couple other smaller venues. And it has really like I had so many people come up to me afterwards with tears in their eyes and uh, just talking about a loved one that they had and how I helped them understand 
what they were going through more or a couple of people that were there happened to actually be treatment professionals. And they came up and thanked me for, for spreading awareness about this topic in the workforce. And so that is something uh, that is a, uh, a topic I'm hoping to continue putting out there and continue speaking at, at conferences. And it's just been really inspiring for me to see the receptivity of it because there is still this stigma. And it's interesting because mental health is something that we've been having in a lot of these workforce conversations for the last couple of years. But substance abuse is always kind of pushed under the rug. They might get mentioned like, oh, mental health issues like da 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 da, substance abuse and anorexia or things like that. But there's never a serious conversation talking about the impact that substance abuse is having on your employees. Yeah. And so and your I feel bottom really line. Yeah. And your bottom line. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that has been um, a really exciting change for me this year to get to marry both the work that I love to do and this topic that I'm so passionate about. And I'm I'm looking forward to continuing that that good fight. Well, that's brilliant. That is incredible, Karina. That's Congratulations. Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Really, really incredible. So we're going to connect you um, to last week's guest, who was our first repeat guest, Jonathan Holt, because he's now the director of the statewide North Dakota Office of Recovery Reinvented, which is the First Lady's platform. She's also in long-term recovery. Oh. And they we just had the annual, sixth annual Recovery Reinvented Conference Um but this is the kind of work that they would be all, all, all over. <laughs> we will send an email yeah. connection as soon as we get Please. off this call because be um, there are not very many places where the governor and first lady have said, we're serious about this issue. So serious that we've put our name and face attached to something and and are really making a difference across the country. So amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. <laughs> I also I didn't realize she was in long-term recovery. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, she really- was not much older than you were when she got sober. Um, so yeah, it's it's an incredible thing that she has done. And she also had never talked about it until he was elected. And she was doing a big, a big um interview for a national magazine and said to him, I'm kind of thinking I might go public. How do you feel? And he said, mm-hmm. You do what you need to do and what you feel comfortable with. And it's been transformational. So they're they're really leading the charge in the political sphere, which is incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, gosh, I'm glad we had you back on yes, for all kinds of reasons. But that was um, wow, it was amazing. Congratulations on figuring out how to again shine a light on a personal story that you could have chosen very easily to keep quiet and secret, and nobody who knew would have blamed you. That's yeah, the other that's thing true. that's so amazing about it. No one would have said. Come on, just talk about it. Who cares? A lot of people care. Yeah. So thank you for that and for sharing the updates. Thank you so much for having us and for all of the work that you've been doing in that exact same vein and having oh. these daily dose conversations and really humanizing this issue for the past two and a half years. It's truly, uh, you know, foundational and important work that that you guys have done. And it's been truly an honor to be a guest. And I'm really excited to see where the next chapter takes you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good luck with your work. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone else, see you on Tuesday. Bye. Bye.
Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana DelVal. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, email me at D A Y N A at D A Y N A D E L V A L dot com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye bye.